For those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirks, one of the associate pastors. And if this is your first time here today, you are joining us for the last part, the fifth and final part of a series I've been working through on the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. God is a king and he has a kingdom and he rules over the entire universe. And my goal throughout this series has been to take this phrase, the sovereignty of God, which we've all heard before and and, uh, many of us have talked about before, but for most Christians, the sovereignty of God is sort of this abstract philosophical concept. We sort of know that he's sovereign, but we don't really know what that means. And so my goal throughout this series has been to take this kind of airy philosophical concept and put, you know, rubber on the road. And what does that mean when we say that God is sovereign? What is he ruling over? What is he in charge of? What is he in control of? What is he actively doing uh, in the world all around us? And so as we've been going through this series, and today will be the last one, uh, we've been working through seven things that God is actively doing and in charge of and in control of uh, in the world all around us and in our lives. And uh, so, so far in this series, we've looked at the fact that he restrains evil. We've looked at the fact that he decides who our leaders will be. He controls all the, all the world's weather. He upholds the laws of nature. He feeds animals, makes plants grow, and decides when they will die. And then last week, and, and probably last week's was, was one of the most important ones of this whole series, was when we talked about the sovereignty of God in your personal life, the fact that God is sovereign over your life from start to finish. And of course, this doesn't mean that you don't have free will, and we talked about all that last week, but he's definitely ruling over your life from start to finish. And then today, and the last one I want to talk about is we have to talk about the fact that God is also sovereign even over the devil, all right? So bow your heads with me, close your eyes, and then we're going to get into this one. Uh, Heavenly Father, this whole series has been for your glory. I just want to lift you up. I want us to love you more. I want us to trust you more. I want us to be able to pray with more faith, Father. And I want us to grow in the fear of the Lord as we look at this thing of your sovereignty, the fact that you are king over the universe. And uh, Lord Jesus, I pray that now in this last message of the weekend, Father, you would uh, fill me with your Holy Spirit and enable me to speak your words in your spirit. I pray that you would prepare our hearts today to receive what you have for us. May we, grow, may, we, may we grow fond of your word and fall in love with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So it's really important to talk about, uh, it's one thing I, I, I sense, I feel like, uh, when many people talk about the sovereignty of God and many preachers and teachers and stuff, when they talk about the sovereignty of God, they rarely talk about where does the devil fit into all of this. And I think it's important that we talk about where the devil fits into all of this because when we look around us at the world all around us, clearly the devil is at work. There's many evil things. There's many messes around the world. And, uh, and so the temptation then is for many Christians to start to think that the devil is in charge rather than God. And so we've got to talk about how does the devil fit into this whole thing. But before we get there, I just want to take a few minutes and at the beginning of this message, and I want to just, first of all, establish the fact that the devil is actually a real being. He's a real personality. He's a, he's a real being uh, who actually exists and is at work in the world around us because it's become fashionable, uh, very fashionable in the uh, church in the West to ignore the devil. Uh, there are Uh, There are whole denominations, there are huge swaths of churches that don't even believe the devil is a real creature. They they just think of him as sort of a mythological, he sort of represents evil in the world, but he's not a real being. He's sort of just sort of a myth out of the Bible. And there's a whole bunch of churches in today's society that have gone that way. 
And then, of course, when we certainly wouldn't be one of those churches that, you know, uh, doesn't take things literally in the Bible, but then there's even a whole bunch of churches that would say that they believe everything in the Bible, and they certainly wouldn't go so far as to say that the devil doesn't actually exist. But the fact of the matter is, like I just said, it has become fashionable just not to talk about him. It's considered weird. You're considered a little bit extreme if you talk about the devil. Um, but what I want to say this morning is uh, the devil, from the very beginning of this book, from Genesis right through Revelation, throughout the entire Bible, from beginning to end, right through the middle, the devil plays a central role in the storyline of this book, which is God's Word. And so any body of believers that ignores the devil, just puts their head in the sand and pretends like he doesn't exist or pretends like he's just a mythological being, is actually being unbiblical. If we really want to hold the Bible to the Bible, yes, there are some groups of Christians that they get to an extreme and they maybe talk about the devil too much. But the fact of the matter is, if we never talk about the Bible, then we are not being, or I mean, the Bible. If we never talk about the devil, then the truth is we're being un, uh, unbiblical. And so I'm going to show you many, many passages in this, in this message about the, the devil. But I want to just show you three from the New Testament. Again, I could show you many, many others. But I want to show you three from the New Testament just for, just for a couple minutes here right at the beginning because I want to show you that the New Testament is very clear. Uh, yes, we don't want to get extreme or, or weird about it, but the New Testament is very clear that we have to be aware of the devil and we have to actively resist him. And we'll start here in 1 Peter 5, uh, verses 8 to 9. It says this, uh, be sober-minded, be watchful, the Apostle Peter says. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so here Peter actually tells us as believers the exact opposite of what we see happening in so many places in the church in the West. He says, don't ignore the devil. We have got to be aware of him. He is, he is like a roaring lion. He's looking for a snack. The implication there is that if we ignore him, that we could become casualties. We could, suffer, uh, we could suffer needlessly. Things that we didn't need to suffer, we will suffer if we're not paying attention to what he's up to. And then, of course, there's 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, where Paul says this. And, he's, and uh, just to give a little background on this chapter, Paul is, is, this is a letter to a specific local church, the Corinthian church, and they're having some problems. And Paul is writing to them about some of the problems they're having. And I want you to see how he brings Satan into this whole thing. And so he says, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Now look at this. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So Paul says, here's a specific local church having a specific problem. And Paul points out to them, he says, and the one who's at work here is literally this being this Satan. Okay? And then he says, we are not ignorant of his schemes. And again, uh, you know, putting our heads in the sand as a Christian church here in the West and just pretending like he's not there, like he doesn't exist, doesn't make him go away. It just allows him to get away with more stuff. And so it's very important that we be aware of this being. And then, of course, there's a very famous passage of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 6. It's often quoted by believers, but I think it's very little believed. It's often quoted, but I think it's very little actually believed by us. And this is what it says in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul is just very clear here that we are in a battle personally and on a church level and on a national level and every level you can imagine. We are in a battle with an actual personality, an actual being. He exists, he has a mind, he has a personality, he has goals, he has desires, all these sorts of things, and we are actually, he has schemes against us, he has forces of darkness, and we are actually engaged in a battle with him. And it is important that as a church, I mean, if the church isn't going to pay attention to him, who on earth is? And so someone has to be on watch, and someone has to be actively resisting him, okay? So that's just the start. The devil is certainly, throughout Scripture, we are warned about him. We are told to be aware of him and to resist him, all that sort of stuff. Now, of course, most of you here this morning, you're totally all with me on that, and you have no problems with that. What I want to do now in the rest of this message is, is speak to those of us who are already in that camp. We don't ignore the devil. We believe he's real. And we believe we have to resist him. What I want to now talk to is there's just so much confusion uh, in Christian circles about, about the devil and the sovereignty of God. Because again, like I said before, uh, we look at the world around us, we see the mess that everything is in, and what begins to happen is we begin to think and pray and feel like the devil is in charge rather than God. Now certainly, is the devil instigating things and causing evil and all that sort of stuff? There's no question he is. Is he working at the highest levels of government around the world? He gravitates to places of power. There's no question he's at work in, in places of power, in places of authority. There's no question he's at work there. But this idea that many Christians are beginning to have, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's bad theology. This idea we have that actually Satan is sovereign over this world and God is not sovereign right now, uh, is it's completely unbiblical and it actually is harmful. It's harmful to the way we pray. It's harmful to the way we think. It's harmful to the way we war and think about the future and all that sort of stuff. And we've looked at many reasons throughout this series why it's important that we establish the sovereignty of God. And so we also need to establish the sovereignty of God here, even above the devil, that God is in charge, not the devil. And uh, I want to start by looking at a passage of Scripture that is probably the passage of Scripture that is the root of, uh, or one of the biggest roots of a lot of the confusion and the bad theology about the devil and the sovereignty of God. And uh, it's an often misused, mistaught passage, not because people are bad. I've misunderstood it much in my life as well, okay? But it's uh, from Matthew chapter 4, famous chapter. It's about the uh, three temptations of Jesus in the desert by the devil. So in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus gets baptized by uh, by uh, John the Baptist, and then in Matthew 4, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness for 40 days of prayer and fasting, and while he's there again, famous story, uh, we have the three temptations, the devil comes to him and tempts him. And now, uh, for the purpose of this series and the sovereignty of God and the devil, the third temptation is a very fascinating uh, temptation. It's a very famous temptation. It's often talked about in messages and books and all that sort of stuff, and it's also the source of a lot of confusion about the sovereignty of God and the devil. And so let's read this temptation here, starting in verse 8. Matthew 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him, that's Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you, the devil talking to Jesus, I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, Again, if you just read this passage, as many people have, very famous passage, if you just read this passage, it sure looks like the devil owns all the kingdoms of the world. 
it sure looks like the devil's in charge because he's offering to Jesus, here, I will give you the kings of the world if you'll worship me. So it sure looks here like Jesus is not the one in, in charge, and it sure looks like the devil's the one in charge, okay? And, and then, you know, as so often happens with Jesus, Jesus actually just doesn't bring any clarity to the subject in this passage. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't, he totally ignores the devil's claim of ownership. Doesn't speak to it at all. He only speaks to the worship issue. And so he replies, uh, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Now, from this passage, people have built this theology. And again, I've, I, and not bad people, not trying to be bad or twist the scriptures or nothing. I mean, it's an easy misunderstanding to take. If you take this passage by itself, it sure seems to teach that the devil owns the kingdoms of the world and not Jesus. But there's a couple things we have to consider. And I want to teach you some things about uh, how you build a doctrine in Scripture. This is so much bigger than just this topic. It's really how we read the Bible in general. And that's why I want to take some time with this here. Um, there's a couple things we need to think of, first of all, about building a, a doctrine off of this passage. The first thing we have to think about is the fact that it is very uh, it, it's troublesome. It's, it's a very sketchy foundation to build a doctrine on something that the devil said. Yes? I mean... Yes, it's in the Bible. It's the Bible quoting the devil. He's the father of lies, okay? So to build a doctrine off of a quote that Satan said, that is, that's a shaky foundation, okay, to begin with. But there's a second thing. The second thing is, and this is just a principle for, a general principle for all of Scripture, is you don't build a doctrine off of one isolated passage of Scripture. Very, very important. I mean, the world is full of cults, hundreds of cults, who have got some passage of the Bible as the foundation for what they believe. Because you can go through the Bible and you can find all kinds of isolated passages that by themselves seem to teach strange things. That's why God gave us a whole book. So we don't build doctrines off of, we don't just take, well, Matthew 4, 8 to 10, that just settles the whole case. The devil owns the kings of the world and Jesus doesn't right now and that explains why there's so much evil. We can't do that. What we have to do is we have to look at what does the whole Bible say? Does that agree with what the whole Bible says? Never mind that it's actually only the devil being quoted here anyway, okay? And so what I want to do, again, I've showed you dozens of passages that directly contradict this throughout this series, but I'm just going to show you six right now. We're going to overkill this just a bit, okay? But I want to make sure that you understand before this point is done that what is going on here is not, the Bible is not teaching here that the devil owns the kingdoms of the earth right now instead of God, okay? So I'm just going to show you six. I could show you dozens. Let's zip through six, okay? I, uh, Job 41 verse 11. God, now this is from God's mouth, okay? This is what God says. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So right there, God says, how could the devil or anyone give anything to God he doesn't already own? Whatever is under the whole heaven already belongs to him. It's all his. Deuteronomy 4, 10 verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Not the earth with some that is in it or most that is in it. The earth with all that is in it. Exodus 19.5, again, directly from the mouth of God himself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, God speaking, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for 
all the earth is mine. So if you're keeping track right now, it's now three to one in favor of God's uh, sovereignty, okay? Passages of Scripture. And again, it's actually dozens to one. Uh, Psalm 24 to one. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So it's not just the stuff in the world, it's also the who, it's also all the people. He owns every one of us. He owns everything because he made it all, okay? Psalm 89 verse 11. The heavens are yours, speaking to God, the earth also is yours, the world and all it contains, you have founded them. And 1 Corinthians 10, 26, to take one from the New Testament as well. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we could go on and on and on and on and on. If you look at what is the whole book saying, what is the whole Bible saying, the Bible is very clear that God owns everything. God is sovereign over everything, okay? So what on earth is Satan offering to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, Okay? Well, I think in order to answer that question, we have to study, and we're going to come back to it at the end of the message, we have to study a little bit more, who is this devil anyway? I mean, we talk about the devil, we talk about Satan. The truth of the matter is, uh, many of us have very little idea who he actually is. Who is the devil? Who is Satan? Okay, the first things you need to know is that Satan and the devil, those are not his, his proper names, okay? The word Satan just comes from the Hebrew, Satan, And it's just an everyday word that means adversary. It's not a name. So you'll find the word Satan throughout the Hebrew Bible, not even referring to the devil, just referring to if one guy is an adversary of another guy or one country is an adversary of another country, that's just Satan. That's adversary. That's all it means. Now, of course, we've kind of attached that to his name now because he is God's chief adversary. He's our chief adversary. But Satan is not his proper name. It's something he does. The word devil, also not his proper name, comes from the Greek word diabolos, which just means accuser or slanderer, okay? So neither of these words, satan and devil, uh, neither of these is his name. These are just things that he does, okay? So who is this devil? Well, if we go, interesting passage of scripture, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15, gives us, is a prophecy, Uh, and it tells us a little bit about the past. See, a lot of people think of prophecy as something that's always about the future. A lot of prophecy in Scripture has nothing to do with the future. Prophecy is just any revelation from God. It's just telling people something about themselves or telling them something, sometimes it's about the future, or it could be something about the past. It's just giving some revelation of something that people couldn't know except that God gives revelation through someone, okay? So this is a prophecy about the past, giving us understanding and revelation about an event that happened in ancient, ancient times, okay? And so let's read it. And it also has the devil's real name in here. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. God laments, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. And this here, in the Hebrew, the phrase there is Hallel ben Shakar. And again, I know, I, I know I'm not getting the pronunciation right, but I'm going to use that, my pronunciation, for the rest of the, the message. But the Hebrew phrase there is Hallel ben Shakar, Daystar, Son of Dawn. Literally what it means is actually shining one. The shining one, son of the dawn. Okay? Now this is actually Satan's proper name. When God made him, he didn't create this hideous beast. He didn't create an evil beast. When God created uh, Hillel ben Shakar, he created a wonderful being, the shining one, son of the dawn, okay? 
And, uh, and his name gives you a little idea of what kind of a being he is, okay? He is very beautiful and handsome. He is very powerful. And he was created, and, and, I, and I have to stay away from some rabbit trails here. There's so many places we could go in this message. But, but God actually created a ruling class of angels. And they're talked about in many places in the Old Testament. And someday I'll, I'll maybe talk about them a little bit more. But, uh, but Halel ben Shekar, the shining one, son of the dawn, was one of them, okay? And he was there, he's not just a normal angel. The normal angels are servants. He is not one of them. God had a divine counsel, okay? Halel ben Shekar, shining one, son of the dawn. Now, this, by the way, also is where we get the name Lucifer from. In the Latin translation of the Hebrew, in the Latin Bible, uh, shining one, the, the word there is Lucifer. That's what it means. Lucifer means shining one. Okay, so that's his, that's his name. His name is Halel ben Shakar. He was made, made as a very good being, a beautiful, powerful leader type being, okay? Unfortunately, his beauty went to his head, and, uh, and so he fell. And so now we read about his fall. This is ancient, ancient history, okay, from many, many thousands of years ago. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. Now, something you have to realize there about the stars, uh, when we think stars, we think he's, he's wanting to exalt himself above the stars we see it just in the sky. What you have to realize about Old Testament thinking was in the Old Testament, they thought the stars were angels. So they very, right throughout the, the Old Testament, you'll see stars and angels are linked very closely. And what Satan actually wants here is to be exalted above all the other angels. He wants to sit with God on his throne and rule with God above everyone else, okay? So his sin is the sin of wanting to be exalted to a higher place than what God had intended for him. And he wants to sit with God and be like God and, and in authority. And so he says, I will sit on the mount of assembly, speaking of the mountain of God in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, uh, to the far reaches of the pit. Okay? So the devil's real name is Halel ben Shakar. He is the shining one, the son of, a, son of the dawn. He is a very beautiful, powerful, intelligent creature. He was created to be one of the leaders of the angels, and that's why he's called the shining one. Now, I want to take you now to Genesis chapter 3, and it's one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. I mean, everybody knows about it, not even non-Christians know about it. It's the, it's the famous story of of Eve and the snake, and it's our, it's our first encounter with Halel ben Shakar in the Bible, okay? And, uh, and of course, like I said, it's a very famous uh, uh, story in our culture. I mean, you see pictures of it everywhere, you know, Adam and Eve with sort of strategically placed bits of leaves and stuff, and then a snake talking out of the tree. Um, now, before we get into this story, I just want to say something. I have to, I'm going to drop a bombshell on you, okay? Um, and are you ready for it, okay? I just have to tell you something. I don't actually believe that Eve talked to a literal, literal snake, okay? There's just sort of a gasp. What? Okay? I don't believe that Eve actually talked to a literal snake, okay? Now, before I go any further there, some of you are, maybe you're horrified right now. Um, let me just say this. This is not an important doctrine. It's not like the crucifixion or the resurrection. If five minutes from now, when I'm done this point, if you still want to believe that a garter snake or a cobra or something slithered up to Eve and told her to eat an apple and she listened to it, you can totally do that. You're not a heretic. You're, you're totally fine, okay? We're not going to put this on the membership questionnaires and start kicking people out of church, okay? You got that? Okay? But, uh, but I don't believe 
okay? And you say, well, then why talk about it at all? It's important. A message like this, it's going to give us, when you see this story in a new light, it just, it just gives us a little more understanding of who this Halel ben Shakar is, what his motivations are, and what's going on, okay? But I don't believe that Eve talked to a literal snake, and there's a few reasons for that. First of all, this isn't the Chronicles of Narnia, okay? In a Garden of Eden, it wasn't talking animals, bears walking around talking to each other and seagulls and all that sort of stuff. That's, that's weird. If, if, Eve, if a snake would have come and talked to Eve, like, I don't know, some tree snake or, or whatever, just slithers up to her and says, you should eat the, eat the apple, I think Eve would have said, uh, Adam, it's talking. Kill it! Kill it! <laughs> Something like that, okay? Um, you say, but the Bible says she talked to a snake. Here's the thing you have to understand about the Bible, Okay? Uh, in the Bible, throughout the Bible, uh, animals are often very closely associated with, with countries, with people, and even with God himself. That there are certain animal associations with certain people, certain countries, even with God himself, and then God makes a close association between the animal and that person, okay? Uh, let me just give you a bunch of examples, okay? Uh, first of all, for example, the, the Greek empire throughout Scripture is, is often closely associated with a leopard. So you'll find lots of prophetic scriptures where it doesn't ever say the Greek empire. It just talks about a leopard. For like a whole chapter in Daniel, it'll talk about a leopard. But obviously, it's not talking about a leopard leopard. It's talking about the Greek empire, okay? And, 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 and a Persian empire is often talked about as if it's a bear. And a Babylonian empire is often talked about as if it's a lion, Okay? Uh, furthermore, if we go to the book of Revelation, well, the whole New Testament, we will find that Jesus himself is often closely associated with either a lion or a lamb. Right? Isn't that true? If you go to, for example, and you can read this later, if you go to Revelation chapter 5, the apostle John gets taken up into heaven and he sees a vision of heaven. And in Revelation chapter 5, while he's looking at the throne of God in the throne room itself, he sees a lamb standing beside the throne. Now, when we read that in Revelation chapter 5, we all immediately, we just read, oh, that's Jesus. None of us actually believes that Jesus is actually a sheep with wool and four legs going bad by the, by the throne of God. That'd be heretical, okay? He's not a biological sheep. But in the book of Revelation, 27 times, 27 times, Jesus is referred to as a lamb. And the reason is because there are certain characteristics of a lamb that are very instructive for us of characteristics that Jesus has. And so there's something throughout Scripture, Jesus is likened to a lamb because there are some amazing things we can learn about Jesus by him being likened to a lamb. But in many of these verses, it doesn't say Jesus, it just talks about a lamb, but we know it's not a sheep. And the same is true with a lion. Jesus is often likened to a lion. Those two animals, lion and lamb, Jesus is often likened to both. But we know that when Jesus is called a lion over and over again in Scripture, we know that he's not a biological big cat, okay? He's Jesus, the Son of God. Now, the same exact thing happens with Satan and snakes throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. Satan is over and over and over and over again very, very closely associated with snakes. There are certain characteristics of Satan that God knows are best represented by talking about him often as a snake. And I'm sure there are many things we don't even understand here fully, but I, just a couple reasons off the top of my head why God likens Satan to a snake. First of all, um, a snake, it's sort of a humbling thing for Satan. He wanted to be exalted to the height, and now God likens him to a snake because ultimately he will be lower even than the beasts of the field. 
That's one of the things. And that even pops up in the curse of Genesis 3, which we'll look at in just a moment. But a second thing is we know that Satan is crafty and cunning like a snake. Okay? So very important. I'll just show you, before we even get to Genesis uh, chapter 3, let me just show you one verse, just to, just to show you this, just to illustrate this. Revelation 12 verse 9 says this, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And so here we see the devil blatantly called an ancient serpent. But of course, when we read this verse, we do not think that the devil is biologically, he's a python, or he's a milk snake, or he's a water snake, or something like that. He's not a, he's, he's not a snake snake. He's a snake, okay? But he's not a snake snake. You got it? He's the ancient serpent. He's the devil, and he's just like Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's a snake. But when Eve was in the Garden of Eden, okay, and again, if you want to believe she talked to a snake, go ahead. I'm not making fun of you. But I don't believe that the Bible is trying to tell us that Eve... I mean, have you ever thought, like, how did she ever fall for it? Like, God tells you, don't eat an apple or you're going to die. And one day the snake, whoa, eat the apple, God's lying. Okay, and you start eating it. It doesn't make sense. But when you see who she's really talking to, it's going to make a lot more sense. Let's go to Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay? Now, interesting thing. So we've already talked about the fact that the Bible always closely associates the devil with a snake. Okay? There's something else very interesting here. And, uh, and there are Hebrew scholars and theologians tell us that there is a, a very good chance that there is a word play going on here in the Hebrew that most of us miss in the English. And the word there, serpent, that appears over and over again in this passage, it comes from the Hebrew word nakash. Now, nakash does mean snake or serpent. There's no question. And it's often translated snake or serpent throughout the, uh, the Old Testament. But it also means something else. And it also is used in that way in many places in the Old Testament. And Nakash doesn't just mean serpent or snake. It can also mean shiny. And if you put that with a definite article in front of it, it would be the shiny or the shining one. And you remember what Satan's name was, right? He is Halel ben Shekar, the shining one, son of the dawn. Who Eve is talking to here, she is not talking to some random snake that is talking to her. She is talking to Halel ben Shekar, and this is why the temptation is so effective. Because God told her, don't eat from the apple. But now she sees Halel ben Shekar. She has seen him before. He is part of God's divine ruling council, okay? Even though he has already fallen in pride. And again, I'd love to go on a rabbit trail there. But, but we see it in Job, we see it in Daniel, we see it over and over again in the Psalms that the devil and his angels still presenting themselves before God and there's some kind of a council and they have meetings. She knows this. She's seen him before. He is incredibly, he's ancient. He's much more ancient than she is. He is powerful. He is a ruling angelic being. He is handsome. He's a smooth talker. He's cunning. He's been with God. And when he comes and says to her, I think God's holding out on you, that seed plants real doubt in her heart because he should know, right? And so she talks to the smooth talker, the shining one himself, the father of lies, and she falls for it. 
Of course, the rest is history. And uh, that's when sin enters the human race. Sin was already in the universe, remember, because Satan had... Hillel ben Shakar was the original sinner. Long before Adam and Eve, he, was, uh, he had already sinned. But now the original sin for human beings enters the human race. And now there's going to be war between God and the devil with humans in the middle having to choose sides ever since. Okay? Now I want to show you the, the curse that God now pronounces on Hillel ben Shakar, the shining one, son of the dawn, just a couple verses later. So the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, speaking of Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first messianic prophecy in the Bible, okay? And uh, amazingly enough, we're only in Genesis 3 already. We need a savior, okay? So he, will, he, Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, again, a couple things here. This cannot be a biological snake, because if, if this is a biological snake, then God is putting a curse of enmity between biological snakes and people. And what he's saying here then is that every human being who will ever be born ever since Adam and Eve will be born with an innate hatred of snakes. And every little baby snake that is born from then till now will be born with an innate hatred of human beings. And the two of them will be locked in a cosmic, human beings and snakes will be locked in a cosmic battle of enmity for all of history. Is that what he's saying? No. Clearly, this is about the devil. And then he, speaking of Jesus, will crush your head. Speaking of the, the crucifixion, clearly this is not a literal snake. Jesus didn't come to earth and a literal snake bit him in the heel and he stepped on his head. That's not really worth prophesying about, okay? This is the crucifixion. The serpent, Halel ben Shakar, Satan, will strike his heel, speaking of the crucifixion. And that very thing that he thinks he's gaining a victory over Jesus becomes very temporary. He gets turned on his head and it's that very thing that then crushes him. Halel ben Shakar, the shining one, son of the dawn. Now, this, now we bring this thing back to the sovereignty of God. And we have to ask a very important question here because we Christians just, we read our Bibles and we just read them and we just think, yeah, this all makes sense, cool. We don't think about it. Because there's a really important question that almost nobody, I've never heard anyone ask a question about this passage. And we just, we just zip right through it. Okay, good. Then that's what God's going to do and he's going to bring the Messiah and we'll crush Satan and all sort of stuff. But why do we not ask the question, why did God not lock the devil up right then? Why didn't he? You ever thought about it? In fact, why didn't he lock him up right after the Isaiah 14 event happened before he could tempt Adam and Eve? I mean, there is no hope. There is no reason why, Halel ben Shakar, you have now sinned. You have had pride, and now you've even brought sin into the human race. I am locking you up right now and tossing away the key. You're done. Ever wondered about that? Why have a prophecy, hey, thousands of years from now, Messiah is going to be born, and then he'll die, that'll crush your head, and then thousands of years after that, he'll come back, and then you'll really be defeated. Why have all the thousands of years of pain and suffering and wickedness in, in, in between? Why? Because there is, there's no reason why, this is the sovereignty of God, there's no reason. The devil has no legal rights. He's a thief. He sinned against God. He could be locked up just like that. But God didn't lock him up. And he's still on the loose today. And we have had thousands of years of human history of all this evil and wickedness going on. And so that tells us something about God and about the devil. Because again, it is very important that we realize, I'm going to show you a bunch of verses in just a second. It is very important that we realize that the devil is not on the loose today because God can't lock him up. The devil is then only on the loose today because God 
chooses, is still choosing today not to lock him up, which means that there has to be some good purpose here. Okay? And we're going to get to those good purposes yet, but before we do, I need to show you a bunch of passages to prove to you that God could lock up the devil whenever he wants. And he could have done it back in the Garden of Eden. So the only reason the devil's on the loose today is not because the devil's so smart, not because the devil's so powerful. It is because God is choosing to let him be loose. So he must have purpose in it. So let me read you a few passages here. And we're going to start with a very important passage about hell. Because I need to develop something for you about hell that many people don't realize. Matthew 25, verse 41. And uh, Jesus is talking here about Judgment Day. And he's talking about on Judgment Day, Jesus is going to sit on his throne and he's going to separate out the, the sheep from the goats. Uh, and all those people who deliberately re- rejected Jesus, they're going to be sent to an eternity in hell. And then, of course, all of, of those who follow Jesus uh, are going to follow him into eternity. Um, but here's what Jesus says to the goats on Judgment Day. Then he, Jesus, will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, that's hell, prepared for the devil and his angels. And I'll just stop there for just a moment. It's very important we get this. A lot of people think that, you know, why would God create this horrible place of hell to torture people? You need to realize something. God did not make hell for human beings. Hell was made before Adam and Eve ever existed. And it says right here, hell was made for the devil and his angels. Okay? Now, unfortunately, many people are choosing to reject Christ And so they are following the devil into a place that was only made for the devil. Okay? But this is the sovereignty of God. He has already made a jail cell where he's going to lock the devil up. He already has it in place. It was already made before Adam and Eve because he made it only for the devil and his angels. Clearly when he made it, there wasn't people ready to go there yet. So the, the hell is an ancient place God made specifically for the devil. Now, so he has a place to lock him up already, but his sovereignty over the devil goes far beyond that. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. This is one of the most uh, stunning passages, clear statements of God's sovereignty over the devil in the entire scripture. And I want you to read what will happen when Jesus comes back. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. I need to just stop there for just a moment. The bottomless pit is a real place, and it has a real door. And you need a key to open the door or to lock it, okay? Very important. It actually exists somewhere. Otherwise, there's no need for a key, okay? So there's a pit. And by the way, bottomless there is a, it's a strange translation for the English. It, it just comes from abyss. It's a very deep pit, okay? It's a very, very deep pit, okay? Um, but anyway, uh, the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent. So again, we see that the devil is likened to a serpent throughout the scriptures, And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. So he locks the door behind him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now I want you to see the sovereignty of God here. When God wants to lock him up, there's no court case, there's no begging, there's no litigation or defense. It's just, oh, it's your time to go bind, chain, lock. Then a thousand years later, God decides, I have purposes for him again. I'm going to let him go for just a a few years again. And then he locks him up again permanently in hell. That is total sovereignty. Lock him up, let him free. Lock him up, let him free. The devil's freedom does not depend on his cunning or his strength. It depends totally on God's will. So who's in charge, God or the devil? He's like a mean dog in the backyard, and God can either loose him or chain him up whenever he wants. 
And if he looses them again, you think, well, that's just evil of God to let them loose. Well, we're going to look at the reasons why. God has some very good reasons for doing it. But who's in charge? It's not the devil, it's God. And of course, then the devil does, while he's loose, he does many, many wicked things that God hates, that God does not want. But God weighs these things in the scales, and he has his reasons for allowing the devil some short-term freedoms because there's some long-term gain to get. Okay? I want to show you another passage. But before I do, I have to do one rabbit trail, and there's no baptisms here, so I'm allowed to do it. Um, This passage is just too good about something that that I can't ignore, and I won't be able to come back to it, I'm sure, for a message for a long time. So... Um, You remember in the Heaven series, and I talked to you about the fact that angels uh, must be physical beings. They must have bodies with physicality. They're made of matter, substance. You can touch them, there's weight. Okay? And uh, I'm in a a year-long war right now against so much of the Greek thinking we have in our minds about Scripture and the way we over-spiritualize things. But I know that when I preached that in that series, a lot of people just were so used to thinking of angels as as they're non-physical. Like a lot of Christians just think if you tried to punch an angel, your arm would just go right through. It's just a puff of air. There's nothing there. Okay? And I know that some of you, even when I preach that message, you're just thinking, oh, it's hard because we're so trained a certain way. Okay, I want you to notice again, throughout Scripture, throughout Scripture, many, 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 many passages like this show very clearly that angelic beings must have physical bodies of substance and mass. Because look at the devil here. He must have a physical body that you can touch and that has mass. Because otherwise, how do you tie him up with a chain, first of all? How do you tie him up with a chain? If he's a puff of air, try tying up a puff of air with a chain. And then, oh, I got you locked up. Doesn't make any sense. And how do you throw him anywhere and then shut the door behind? If angelic beings have no mass and no physicality, shutting doors doesn't do anything because they'll just pass right through. Clearly, throughout Scripture, over and over again, yes, do they have, are their bodies different in some ways than human bodies? No question. Can they do some things that we can't do? Yes. No question. And they can make themselves invisible and do different things. But there is certainly physicality to heaven and hell. And never mind the fact that human beings are going to hell. But hell was made for the devil. Well, human beings are physical. Hell has to be a physical place. For the devil and his angels to be there, they have to be physical too. These are physical, real, true places. All right? Back to sovereignty of God. Okay, one more passage. Okay, so God can lock him up, set him loose, lock him up whenever he wants. He asks no questions. He's completely in charge. I want to show you one more passage here. And it's from Revelation chapter 13. And it is one of the most stunning statements about God's sovereignty over the devil. Uh, Right up there with Revelation 20. And let me give you a little background. In the years just before Jesus returns to earth, uh, an evil ruler, who we call the Antichrist, is going to rise to power in the world, okay? And he will be the most powerful human ruler ever in human history until, of course, Jesus comes back right after end his reign, okay? But he will be the most powerful and wicked and evil ruler in all of human history. His kingdom will span most of the globe, okay? It'll be the biggest human kingdom that has ever existed in human history, okay? Very powerful. And this Antichrist will be filled with, the, with Satan's power, and he will be directly partnered with Satan himself. And during his reign, what we call the Great Tribulation, uh, the, Satan's power on the earth will reach its zenith, its high point, its climax, And you would think if there was any time in human history when the devil's sovereignty was the highest and God's sovereignty was the lowest, it would have to be that time in human history. 
I mean, if ever there was a time when the Antichrist, I mean, that is the biggest, most evil, most wicked, most powerful the devil ever gets in human history, surely that would be the time. If there was ever a time in human history when God's sovereignty must be down at least a bit, it would be then. But I want to show you now a passage of Scripture, Revelation 13, 5 to 8. I want, to, I want you to see how the Bible talks about the Antichrist and the devil even during that time. And you will see that God's sovereignty is 100% complete at all times. And if it is 100% complete then, there is no question it's 100% complete right now. So let me show you this, verse 5. And the beast, that is Revelation's uh, name for the Antichrist, this, this world leader partnered with Satan, directly partnered with Satan. And the beast, now look at the language that, that John uses by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the beast was given. <laughs> and the beast, the most powerful evil Ruler in human history, directly partnered with Satan, was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. I'm going to stop it for just a moment. The Antichrist, the very mouth he uses to blaspheme God, is given to him by who? God. The very platform he has of world leadership and military power and all this sort of stuff and political power that he has from which he blasphemes God is given to him by who? God. Him and the devil don't rise to world power because they suddenly one day they decided, we're going to rise to world power. If it was that easy for them, they would do it right now. They don't rise to power because they're, so, because they're so strong, because they're so amazing, because they're just, they've overpowered God's forces finally. They rise to power because God says, well, it's time. And then he gives them power and he allows them to come to power over the world. And then God says exactly how long it will be. It won't be 41 months. It won't be 43. It won't be some indefinite period of time. Exactly 42 months for my purposes, God says. Like the sovereignty of God, complete. And if it is complete, then there's no question that we can trust that it is complete right now. Because that's the worst time in human history. If we read the rest of this passage, it goes on to say, also it, speaking of the beast, the Antichrist and his empire, was allowed, now this is a sobering statement, but again, we see the sovereignty of God. It was allowed to make war on the saints, that's us, and to conquer them. So there will be intense persecution and suffering. But in all this, we can trust God because it's not out of his control. We can trust God in the midst of it that is, it is exactly in his plan for our ultimate good and that's why he's allowing it. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Okay? So that's the sovereignty of God. Nothing happens. The devil doesn't get, the devil's only loose because he allows it. He only gets power if God gives it to him. And so now the question is, why? Why, why, why would God do that? We look at the wickedness. We look at the evil. We look at the suffering around the world. Why does God do it that way? Why not? I mean, if he would have just locked him up at the Garden of Eden, it would have been much better for all of us. And it's true. It would have been much smoother sailing. But it wouldn't have been better for us in eternity. And you say, how? Let me just show you. Well, first of all, there are some, there's a certain level here, and I just need to stop and say this. When trying to answer the problem of evil and Satan and the devil and wickedness and suffering in the world, we have to understand that at a certain point, we will just have to trust God. We will just have to trust God. There are things he knows about the past, ancient history, why he made the universe, 
what his purposes were, why he made the devil, why he made us. There are certain things about history we don't know right now from the ancient past. And there are certain things about the future we don't know. And God knows all of these things. So part of this is we're just going to have to trust him because there are just some things we don't know. And so at a certain point, some people knock themselves crazy, and you might be one of those people here today, you're trying to get a 100% satisfactory answer on why God lets the devil be loose, on why God allows evil to happen in the world, and I'm just here to tell you right now, you're never going to get a 100% satisfactory answer. Some of it, we're just going to have to come to a place where we just trust that God knows, that God is in control, that he's going to make everything right, and we're going to have to just trust, Okay? Having said that, I think there are some good answers that God has given us enough that we can, it gives us a taste that there are good things to come of this. So let me just show you four. And again, there are, I'm sure there are many, many. Let me just show you four reasons why when God could lock him up and save us all a lot of grief, why he allows the devil to run loose. And again, the sovereignty of God says that he doesn't let the devil do whatever he wants. He sets boundaries. If the devil was allowed to do whatever he wants, I'm sure we'd all be dead by now. So he restrains him. But within that box of sovereignty, God lets him do many things that God hates, really, really hates. And that he will punish the devil for in the future and all the people who are inspired by the devil, he'll punish them, but he gives them some freedom to do murder and rape and violence and things to a certain level, not inside the box. And so let me show you at least four reasons. There are at least four, and there's I'm sure many more that we're not touching on here. But one reason is God wants to purify his bride, the church. Okay? The truth of the matter is, it takes very hot fire to refine gold. And the same is true of people and the church. The same is true of people and the church. It's right in the heat of the most intense, fiery trials that are directly from Satan and his hatred and his attacks and the persecution and the fiery battles we go through with the spiritual forces of darkness in this world. It's exactly in those struggles we have in our lives and on the church level and the national level. It's exactly in those struggles where apathy and selfishness and pride and all of these things, isn't it exactly there? And pettiness and self-pity. It's exactly in those trials and our struggle against the devil. Isn't it where those things begin to drop off our lives? It's true. You read the stories of millions of Christians who have suffered because of exactly, directly because of the devil and his work. From the Apostle Paul to the 12 disciples, the persecutions they went through, to more modern times, people like Corrie ten Boom at the hands of Adolf Hitler, totally a satanically inspired leader, to Richard Wormbrand, who was tortured for years in the 60s and 70s, I believe, in uh, communist Romania, who just tortured and tortured and tortured, to Brother Yun, uh, a wonderful man in China, in just even recent times, who's been tortured and beaten and imprisoned many times in the last couple of decades uh, in China, uh, just right now today, uh, because of his belief in Christ. You read the stories of these people and thousands and hundreds of thousands of other believers, and what you read is, uh, after their persecutions and after their fiery trials, after they've borne the brunt of the devil's hate, you find in these people a meekness, a strength of faith, a patience, a joy, the fragrance of Christ just comes out of them. And it's a direct result. It's a direct result. The devil came at him full force, and on the other side of his hatred, they came out better. 
This is so true. Uh, we've had the privilege as a staff here at South and a couple times in the last few years, we've actually had quietly, we've had leaders from the underground church in various persecuted countries in the world. We've had uh, uh, a couple times, we've had a group of them come in and speak to us as staff. And one of the things I, I've heard them say with my own mouth, they said it to us. They said, don't pray for the persecution to stop. Here in, the, here in the West, we ask the intellectual question, why would God allow evil? And there, in the persecuted church, they pray, God, don't lock up the devil yet. We're just benefiting too much right now. Don't lock him up right yet because actually it's our secret weapon. Our churches are filled with holiness. They're filled with zeal. They're filled with prayer and fasting. We have very little apathy or, or self-centeredness or splits like you guys have in the West. And our secret weapon is Suffering. And the more the devil tries to hurt them, the more people get saved. They're getting saved by the millions every year in China right now. By the millions. And the power of God, they're seeing signs and wonders. And it's like, it's like so the harder the devil works, the more he loses. Like, that's the sovereignty of God. That is the sovereignty of God. The devil is trapped in a lose-lose situation. If he gives up, he loses. But the harder he works against God, the more good things come as a result. And so one of the reasons the, that God lets the devil be loose is because, again, he weighs in the balances short-term consequences. There's a lot of pain and evil and things happen that God hates and someday he's going to make them all right and he's going to judge the evildoers, no question. And he could stop it right now so there was no more. But he weighs in the balances and he says, it's still worth it, a little more short-term pain, a little more letting the devil get away with some stuff in the short-term for the long-term gain, which is millions and millions of Christians who are going to stand before God on Judgment Day and receive massive amounts of reward and who are going to have the most beautiful Christ-like character you can imagine for all of eternity as a direct result of God allowing Satan to attack them the sovereignty of God. I don't have much time to go into depth on all of these, but I'll just throw the other three up there. A second reason why God allows him to be loose instead of just locking him up right now is that the pain caused by Satan's attacks often causes people to turn to God and be saved from hell. I mean, again, you look at some of the wars and the violence and the rapes and the disgusting things that happen around the world, and it's often in the midst of these things that people cry out to God and are saved. And so again, we see the sovereignty of God over the devil. It's a lose-lose for the devil. And the harder you work, you still lose. A third thing is that God wants us to have a choice. I mean, this is a very inadequate, very, very inadequate analogy. But I mean, if you live in a small town um, and there's only one restaurant in that town, well, everybody goes there for coffee. But the fact that you go there for coffee doesn't mean you actually like the food. There's just no options, okay? And I know it's a totally inadequate analogy, but it's a little similar thing with Jesus. Jesus does not want on Judgment Day, there's going to be billions of people there, and he locked up Satan right at the beginning, so there was no options, and there's billions of people coming into heaven, and they're kind of there like, well, there was nothing else. There's something good. Someday in the future, we will look back and we will be glad that God gave us a choice because there will be something good about that. And Jesus says, one of the things I want is I want everyone to have a clear choice. There is my side and then there's the other side. You don't have to choose me. There is another side. And so every human being gets to make a choice about where they want to follow. And that is just innately very, very good. And I think it gives us as human beings a dignity that we otherwise wouldn't have. And lastly, by the devil being loose, many false 
potentially false believers are kept out of the church. Not all false believers are kept out of the church, of course, but many false believers are kept out of the church because, what again, what is the devil's primary work on the world? To, he hates the church. He persecutes the church. Wherever he can, he brings overt persecution. In the countries where he can't pull that off, he does what he does in countries like ours, which is hate Christians, political correctness, marginalize them, and hate us in different ways, where it's not you know, us getting thrown in jail yet or anything like that, but it's different ways. And so however he can, he brings some form of hatred against the church. Now the thing is, this is actually good for us in many ways. One of the reasons it's good for us is if God just took Satan's influence right out of the world, right away one of the things that would happen, because he's the one inspiring so much hate, your hate levels would go way down. Well, if there's no hate of the church, the next thing that happens is often it could just become cool to go to church. You think, wow, that doesn't sound so bad. Think about what happens if everywhere around the world it becomes cool to go to church. The church quickly fills up with people who have no care for Jesus. It's just the thing to do. By giving some negative reinforcement, by drawing a line and putting some negative pressure on the church and allowing the devil to apply that pressure, what happens is God keeps the church from just being filled up. This happened, by the way, in history when the Roman Empire went from hating the church to the emperor Constantine actually declared Christianity to be the official religion. You know what happened right away? The churches all grew. But you know what happened to the church? It died. The same thing would happen on a global scale if it wasn't for the devil applying some negative pressure on us. And so we see that God brings good out of it. So that's the sovereignty of God over the devil. He can lock him up any time he chooses. The devil can't ultimately go outside of his box. He can't do more evil than what God's allowing him to do. God sets boundaries on him. And number three, all the evil stuff the devil does, God ultimately turns it on its head and uses it to accomplish many good purposes. It's God's total and complete sovereignty over the devil. So now we've come full circle, and I finish this message with a little thought about Matthew 4. So what on earth is going on in Matthew 4 when the devil offers to Jesus the kingdoms of the world? Well, we've seen the devil has nothing to give to Jesus. So what's happening there? Well, again, there's some uncertainty there. Again, what, what can we base anything on on Satan's words? There's so much lie, you know, twisted in with truth. But here's what I think. I think that the devil is trying to offer to Jesus a shortcut. And I think that he badly misjudged Jesus' actual motivations and heart and desire. And you say, shortcut, what do you mean? I think that what happened is the devil took Jesus up to this mountain, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And what he showed him was all the wickedness that he had inspired. Because again, the devil always goes for the highest places of power and he brings evilness into government and leaders and all this sort of stuff. And he shows him all this wickedness that he's incited. And he shows him all the hatred towards God, how all the kingdoms of the world hate God and hate God's people. And Satan says, look at, look at all this stuff. And then he offers Jesus a shortcut. If you will just worship me, I'll stop inciting them to hate you. If you'll just worship me, we're back to Isaiah 14. What does Satan want? He wants to sit on the throne with God. He wants to partner with God and rule with God. If you'll just worship me, Jesus, we can be partners. We'll sit together here. I'll stop getting the world to hate you and the whole world will follow you. Things will go smoothly. Evil will come way down because I won't be working against you anymore. We'll do it together. Now again, there are many reasons why Jesus says no to this temptation. Number one being, he is God and he would never worship you know, anyone else, or the devil in particular. Okay? But also, what the devil is misunderstanding here is Jesus' heart. Jesus' heart when he came here is not 
I just want to have things easy. I just want to have the whole world follow me. Me and the devil can just team up together and then we won't be against each other so everybody will follow me. That's not what Jesus wants. He doesn't want just lots of followers. He doesn't just want things to be easy. What Jesus really wants is men's hearts. He doesn't want everybody to just have to follow him. He doesn't want everybody to just follow him because it's easy. He actually wants it to be a little difficult because he wants people only to choose him if they really love him. And he was willing to die for that. He didn't want any shortcut. He's willing to go through the pain and the sorrow and the anger he's had to deal with for the last thousands and thousands of years of all the things that have been happening because he wants us to be able to choose to give him our hearts. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, this is what you want from us. This is the sovereignty of God and the love of God together. You're actually in control. You could shut this whole operation down right now. You could get rid of all of evil, but you don't do it because you want us to be able to choose you. And so I say to you this morning, personally for myself, I choose to give you my heart. And on behalf of this church here, Father, I want us to be a church where we all willingly say to you, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, I pray that we would all willingly give you our hearts. That's what you want. That we would give you our love, not because it's easy. Father, I thank you that there are persecutions. I thank you that there's hardship in this world, that we can choose you. We choose you. And we know that ultimately, Lord, you are the ultimate pleasure that we can experience. And we look forward to living with you for eternity. In your name I pray, amen.